there's really something about a pile of stones for boys. Um, if you're a boy, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, when you see just a big pile of rocks, you just you pick them up and it just is like, you should throw this. Um, I, I don't know. Like guys, you know what I'm talking about, okay? And girls, you think we're weird. But there's just something about this pile of stones that just you, you, as a guy, you just pick it up and you just want to throw it. I was last summer with a group of um, guys. We were part of a larger group of students who went to a conference in Colorado. And as part of one of the things we did for free day, we took a hike up to the top of this mountain. And, you know, you get up to the top of the mountain, there's not a lot of vegetation. You know what there are a lot of? Stones. And so we get up to the top and, you know, most people, you're going to sit down and you look and you take a few pictures. And it doesn't take long before here we have these guys. We're we're at the top of a mountain. I mean, you should throw rocks off the top of a mountain. And so we start picking up stones and we start to throw them. And, um, you know, it takes a little while sometimes for guys to get organized. And um, like all guys, we did. But pretty soon we had... One guy who was kind of out in front of the rest, and he would throw up like a, a bigger rock, and the rest would just kind of like line up. We were like in one big line. And just like skeet shooting, I mean, we threw that thing up in the air, and then we just went, and this whole line of guys was trying to hit the rock out of the air with other rocks. And listen, the celebration when we hit one of those. Um, you know, so we have all these guys in our uh, youth group who are just throwing rocks off the top of this mountain. And, um, and then the girls in our group are kind of sitting off to the side, like mocking us and laughing and taking our picture because they think, this is so weird. And if I showed that to you, all the guys would say, that's not weird at all. And all the girls would say, yeah, that's really strange. There's something about rocks and stones that as you just, just want to pick it up and like throw it. I was... I learned this lesson early, was in elementary school, and I don't really know why I was at my neighbor's house, but I was, uh, or a friend's house, but I was outside by myself. I, I don't know why. Um, I was outside by myself and just casually started picking up rocks, and like every boy, just, you just throw them. And uh, as an elementary school student, I remember being outside my friend's house and was throwing rocks and, you know, trying to hit a tree and didn't have the arm as an elementary boy that I maybe have now and um, missed the tree. And I hit a window of a neighbor's house that I didn't know. And uh, no one was around. And so you think, no one's around. You go through that crisis moment. Like some of you have been there. You go through that crisis moment where you think, am I going to tell somebody? Because like no one sees me. And so you're thinking the only evidence is a rock in somebody's bedroom and it certainly isn't going to say anything. So should I? I found myself in that crisis moment thinking, what will I do? And I'll leave you at ease that you know I did confess um, of breaking that window. But um, I think there is something unique about stones. And today we're going to talk a little bit and look a little bit about this idea of a stone and its appearance in Scripture. 
But um, before we dive in, I want to just tell you that as a part of preparation for this talk, um, I was originally going to be giving a, um, a sermon that was a part of a series that Scott was going to be leading us through. And then as most of you know, we went longer in the previous series than what we had attended. So then here we are today. And it kind of landed. And so Scott and I were talking and he says, you, you have a wild card. You just can kind of talk about whatever there would be. And so, you know, being the Christian boy that I am, I look in Scripture and I see, well, it's Palm Sunday. And I kind of, for some reason, I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about Palm Sunday. I read the passage and I read the the text and I, I just, so you know, I read it and I, I felt convicted. I felt like there's like nothing else I could talk about except for this Palm Sunday text. And just, uh, we're going to look at the account that's in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 19. I would invite you to turn there with me. I'm going to talk about some stuff in this passage starting in verse 28. But if you open to your Bible, I'm going to reference a parable that happens before that passage. We're not going to read that parable. So if like, I start talking and I get really bored, just read the parable before. Um, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. So that's where we'll be today. Let's read that together. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set on it, set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Earlier in our worship service, Chris read an account from Matthew, which is also of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday is a day... In, uh, in a church where we celebrate that entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as he kind of marks the beginning of what is known as kind of Easter week or Passion week. He comes in and he enters into Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. And so just as our text shows us that there are many people who had kind of been aware of what was going on, but here he kind of enters in and it's very purposeful. But why Palm Sunday? Uh, there are not mentioned here in our account in Luke, but there were palm branches that were a part of the story. And not just a part of that original story, but in particular why we call it Palm Sunday is because throughout history, the church, as a part of worship year after year, would wave the palm branches kind of as this procession as a part of what they did in their worship. And so it kind of has taken on this name of Palm Sunday. And we... um, we don't understand a whole lot about palm branches ourselves because we just don't use it as a part of, except for anything maybe on today. But 
for those people who are around Jesus, they understood that the palm branches were very much a symbol of victory. It was something that was done in, in a waving, in a symbol of uh, kind of uh, a victory together. Um, it was also something that for that specific time that was a symbol of kind of revolt against the oppression uh, that was going on in their area from the Romans. And so they kind of recognized that the, the waving of those branches was um, a symbol of victory, but also that the new, the new kingdom was coming of, of Jesus. There's a lot that could be said about the palms. But as a part of our worship today, and I was thinking about this Palm Sunday, and I kind of hope you'll have this picture with me, there's this rich moment of thinking about this, the palms that were waved around Jesus, that they were a sign of victory. Then we think, I think I love the picture that we had here of children waving those, that it's appropriate for us to wave those today. And I want to read a passage that kind of helps us understand kind of what we're doing as we wave those. Revelation chapter 7. Starting in verse 9, it's a vision of heaven. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Such a wonderful demonstration of praise. As we think about the, the palm branches being waved, not just in our worship today, but in heavenly worship. I, I love that image that we get together. The idea of, of waving those palm branches. But we're not going to talk about palms today. There's a lot we could talk about with the palms. And um, we could kind of explore that. There's a, a whole lot more to Palm Sunday than just palms. Um, whether you know that yet or not. There's much we could even talk about in the account. We could talk about the donkey that Jesus chose to, wrote, to, to ride into Jerusalem. And in fact, we could say something about how Jesus liked to walk everywhere he went, and then for like the last two miles, he decided, let's ride uh, into Jerusalem. And there's, there's significance to that. There's meaning to the fact that he chose to ride, um, that he also chose a donkey in particular. in the fact that he would choose um, to ride uh, on that. We could talk a lot about why he chose to ride on the donkey into Jerusalem. It, we could talk about the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, about how uh, his, his riding in fulfills that prophecy. We could talk about Palm Sunday, the praise of the people and kind of the words that they were saying, what they chose to say. We could talk about how the people laid their cloaks down on the top of the animal. We could talk about how they then also laid their garments down on the ground right before him. And, and what does that mean? And what's the significance of that? And kind of how does that amplify uh, worship? We could talk about how um, 
how in this moment of worship they used this passage from Psalm 118 and these words that they were saying, and we could talk about some of the stuff that was going on there. If um, there, there are many things that we could talk about today. I'll tell you, we're going to focus in um, on, on something that's just maybe a, a smaller detail in this story, but I, uh, you know, if you forget maybe everything else and all you remember is the power went out and that was weird and, um, <laughs> you know, you, you think... That's kind of crazy. And if you don't write anything else down, then now that our screens are up, you can write this down. If you forget everything else, right? remember this. We worship Jesus because he's our Savior. We worship Jesus because he's our Savior, our Messiah. We're going to see that in the story. We're going to talk about that. We're going to end with that. And we're going to end with our spot in that. That's, that's what we're going to do. So if you forget everything else, remember that one part. But I do want you to know there's a lot of meaning in the text. This uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. And it's something I believe that we should look at and we're going to study. And, um, and I believe that God has something special to say to us in particular about that last statement that Jesus mentions in our passage today that I tell you if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I want to help you get a picture of what that is with an actual picture. Um, there's a photo... And it's kind of the same, it's the same thing on both sides of the photo, just a little different exposure. Um, but this is a picture from about the year 1900, and it's in Jerusalem. And there were, what I like about this, the age of this picture is that it, these photos that were taken around Jerusalem that are included in the book that I found this one in um, happened before really modernization took place in the area. There's a lot that's changed in kind of the landscape and the look uh, of what things look like it's not it's a little bit like we can take a look a hundred years back but even beyond that this is kind of the same type of look that we would have and I like this because if you notice that road that's kind of off in the distance the road off in the distance is the road that as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem that he would have come down that's the road that kind of leads into and then back out to Bethany and it's where Jesus all throughout the Passion Week he would come into Jerusalem and then go back out, all except for Wednesday. There's no account really of Wednesday. But um, every day of the week, he would come in that road and back out. And, and I, I want you to notice in the foreground of that photo that you see a lot of loose stones. The roads there are filled with lots of loose stones. And so as Jesus is making this statement about stones, it's not like... Uh, an uncommon thing. They're everywhere. And so, um, in particular, this actual spot in the very foreground, um, that pile of loose stones, where the very first martyr of the church, Stephen, was taken out of town and uh, was uh, met his death there with a pile of stones much like that. That's the, that's the place, that's the picture, that's the environment that Jesus is riding in and for, for the place that we're picking up in the story, as he's riding in, Jerusalem's not yet in view. That they're kind of outside of town. It, it, they weren't able to see the city um, all the way in. And, but as they're kind of coming in and, they, and he's um, kind of taking his place on, on the donkey and the, he's riding, that um, people begin to praise him. And they start to praise with, a, um, with this phrase that's actually quite a common phrase for anyone who was coming into the temple to worship. Um, it came out of Psalm 118. 
uh, verse 26, but um, they add some stuff to it. They add a few things that are not in there. Uh, the phrase that they are using says, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And in Luke, we don't see the word Hosanna. And that's because Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentiles. And Hosanna is a Hebrew word. And so it kind of just would not make sense to the readers. It's the only reason he doesn't use that word. But the word was there. They've added that phrase, the king. Um, so they're saying, save us, the king. Save us, the king. It's a, a part of their worship. It's a part of that moment of worship when they're coming. And I think that this statement uh, and this worship is really neat because as they're coming in and this crowd, I imagine that as they're drawing kind of closer, that maybe people are starting to hear there's some commotion going on outside of town. And some people start to come from town back out. In fact, we know a little bit about the crowd who was there, but, but I imagine that kind of it builds a little bit kind of as they kind of come into to town. Before we talk about that praise uh, kind of welling up, um, what's important for, for us to know is that we're used to reading passages about Jesus where he says, they say, you're the son of God. And he says, Shh, don't tell anybody. I think, that's kind of, don't tell anybody. We're used to seeing that. In fact, in chapter 9, Jesus does just that. They say, you're the Son of God. And he says, don't tell anybody yet. In our passage today, you need to know, this is one of those places, probably the most significant place, where Jesus accepts and steps into that role of Messiah. It's not an accident. It's absolutely on purpose that he gets on uh, the donkey rides in as a king, accepts the praise where they don't just say, blessed is he who comes, but blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. So Jesus is stepping fully into his role as Messiah. And the worship that he's receiving is then fitting, not just as a good teacher, not just as someone who has done some really awesome miracles, but the worship he's receiving is worship that's fitting as the Messiah. And so those, that statement that the crowd is saying before Jerusalem's even in view, they're saying, um, blessed is he who comes, the king, in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. You've probably heard this phrase, whether from a preacher or in a book or maybe even Facebook. Um, you, you've heard a phrase where they say that same crowd of people who were around Jesus on Palm Sunday shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches were, were just on Friday, then going to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And I want to clarify that a little bit because part of that's true, but part of that is not. Um, because they're not in the city yet. In fact, the passage Chris read um, earlier in our worship from Matthew um, about Jesus' entry into the city, it says, when he got into the town, they said, who is this man? And so the people in the city were kind of saying, what's who is this person? The people outside of the city who are worshiping as he's coming in know very, very well, and they're praising him as Messiah. But not everyone then who would chant, crucify him. Um, in fact, much of the city who would then um, be persuaded by the Pharisees and religious leaders did not participate in that same entry worship that was happening. And I say that because I want you to know that the worship that Jesus was receiving in that moment was quite authentic, and it was very meaningful. 
In fact, in one of the other accounts in John chapter 12, verse 17 and 18, it tells us a little bit more about the crowd that was around Jesus. It says the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went was that they had heard he had done this sign. We know from our text in Luke that the people had come out because they had heard about the miraculous wonders that he had done and the people were around him. The people came and were um, because they knew what Jesus had done and who he was. And there was a group of people that had been kind of traveling with Jesus, his disciples. It says previous to our passage in Luke chapter 19, there's a parable right before that. It says Jesus was... He said, I need to tell this story because they think the kingdom's happening now. They think it's coming immediately. And so Jesus tells this parable, this teaching, where he talks about uh, how a nobleman gives um, ten of his servants uh, kind of a deposit of money. And, um, and, he, and he goes away to receive a kingdom. And then when he comes back, he kind of says, what have you done with the money? And we, we, it's familiar with another parable that we, we might know, a parable of the talents. That's a different parable. The talents parable is about kind of you're each given something unique. Um, this parable that Jesus tells is you're all given the same amount. And, um, and so it's not about how you use the gift that God's given you. This one is about as the king goes, uh, as the nobleman goes to get his kingdom and he comes back in, what will you have done with the deposit that was given? And so the application we know kind of looking back into it is that we're all given a deposit of faith. We're all given that same deposit of the gospel. What will we do with that? That's kind of the idea. But it's very much um, a, a parable that as Jesus would tell this to people, it was about receiving a kingdom. And it was something that they were familiar with because it talked about a nobleman leaving to go kind of gain the status of a king and then coming back in. And that's what Herod had done, that he had left to go to Rome to kind of receive this status of king and then comes back in. But when Herod came back in, he would have come back in with all this big demonstration on a war horse. And Jesus, with the the crowd's mind on royalty, with them thinking about him as king, doesn't come in on a war horse, comes in on a donkey, a sign of peace. And he comes in and, and, and they're thinking this kingdom's coming, this kingdom's coming. And their mindsets are very much in royal worship but it's just not going to happen right away as the parable would tell us and we of course have a unique perspective of this week and we see how it all has unfolded so when we take all of that in i do want you to see that it's a rich environment of worship of jesus as the king but the worship environment i think and the text doesn't say this for sure but i imagine it starts to get louder and louder and louder and louder as more people start to join in. I imagine that that's what's taking place. We see that the Pharisees have something to say. They usually do. And the Pharisees who are around, it's easy for me to immediately assume that the Pharisees have just bad motives, that they're frowning, they're jealous, they're angry. Because in my mind, I don't know how you think. In my mind, I always picture Pharisees as mean. Um, and so it's easy for me to just picture them as being mean and jealous and Jesus is getting attention and I want attention. But for the sake of discussion, let's say that maybe they're not mean, maybe, they're, maybe they are genu- genuinely concerned that the Romans are going to hear about this demonstration of praise and they think, well, we don't want them to take Jesus. 
Let's just assume that maybe that's it. I don't know. Um, we don't want them to take Jesus. We don't want to take notice because a, a new king's coming in and they, the Romans have uh, kind of power and control in the area. I don't know why, whether it's bad motives or good motives, but we know what they say. They say, teacher, tell your disciples to quiet down. Tell them to like stop the commotion. And Jesus says a really cool thing. He says, if those people, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. I was preparing, uh, looking at that passage. I couldn't get that phrase out of my mind. And I wrote down early in my preparation, I wrote down some thoughts uh, about that. And, and I was wondering, like, how, how much could I say about this, the stone? What, what would be appropriate? Where would that go? And I, I began to think about that. I um, started to read then the text that comes right after our, our passage in Luke 19, verse 41. Let's look at that together. As they drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, "What Would that you, even you, had known on this day that the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus takes a moment to stop and to weep. There's another photo of kind of an artist's idea of what, what did that scene look like uh, as maybe Jerusalem comes into view. It would look different today, but this might be similar to how it would look as coming from Bethany as the city comes into view and you can see the temple and you can see this incredible demonstration of this the stones that were cut for the temple took thousands and thousands of men to cut them and to stack them. And Jesus weeps because He says those stones in His prophecy will come down. Because they didn't recognize that the Son of Man was among them bringing an offering of peace. This combination of Jesus saying, if the people stop praising, the stones will cry out. And then what He says right next, I think this movement of tears where he is crying not because he's going to meet a cross. He's not brought to, to, to weeping because of his own fate, but because of the fate of Jerusalem. God wants so desperately for his people to worship him as Savior and King. God wants that so much that he would weep over a city that wouldn't recognize it. But I thought, what, if, what about the stones? What about the stones that would cry out? What about the stones that would fall down? I began to think about stones. I began to think, like, is it okay if I preach a lot about stones? Like, where would I go with that? I, with, I thought back to some, early, some Old Testament references to stones. There's one in Genesis 28 where Jacob is visited by God and, uh, and he, he kind of marks that by raising up kind of lifting up a stone um, that would kind of mark that place. He says, this place where I lift up this pillar of stone will be the house of God. And he calls that place Bethel. And then in 1 Samuel 7, there's a passage where we know that Samuel did something similar. He set up a pillar, a stone called an Ebenezer and uh, called it a stone of help where God kind of came to bring help. And, And there are many places in the Old Testament 
where we learn about the significance of stones. I was thinking about, in particular, that um, the, the song that we, we even sang, that Christ is our cornerstone. We see the, the prophecy of that in the Old Testament. In fact, the mention of cornerstone is in Psalm 118. It says the cornerstone, uh, or the, the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. That's in the same one that they're using as this phrase to worship Him. I'm thinking there's got to be something to this stone. So I'm thinking, oh, this cornerstone, Jesus' is cornerstone. And then I'm thinking about how um, in Isaiah 28, Jesus is called a precious stone, a tested stone, um, a, a, found, a sure foundation. And then, of course, you know Moses in the wilderness. Um, as they're going, he strikes the, the, the rock with his staff and water comes out. And the people at the time didn't recognize what's going on. It took the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10 to explain that then that, that rock in the wilderness was Christ. And you find this, I kept thinking, there's a lot that could be said about stones. Like, but where, that's why I wrote down, I said, I said, where does that lead? That's what I wrote down. And I was reading and studying and reading and studying and, um, I thought this, this has to lead somewhere and, and we'll close with where it leads because it leads to us. It leads to us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And you're going to see how some of these passages that I just mentioned come together and you're going to see how it leads to us. We'll read verse, starting in verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for, those, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a, royal, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You may remember the word visitation from our passage that we just read in Luke chapter 19. You know what's interesting is that word in the Greek language, which is what it was written in, um, that's translated for us in English, visitation, only occurs two times in the New Testament, in Luke 19 and 1 Peter 2. The actual word that, that you would see translated most often that's a similar word is bishop or overseer. And so kind of the idea is that the overseer is kind of coming to oversee or to kind of visit. And so we, we have that word visitation is how we, we see that. 
it's only used in these two places. And then also we see that same language about stones being used there. And I began to look at that and put that together. And I thought that that, that means something. That means something for us. You see, Jesus is weeping because upon his visitation of Jerusalem, they don't recognize what he is, who he is, what he brings in his message of peace. They don't recognize it and he weeps because it means their destruction. But us, we, and we know the rest of the story, that because of the work of Christ, we are living stones. That although the temple and its stones were destroyed, those stones which were carefully stacked to give a testimony to God were destroyed. They were, they were stacked up and created this structure that was giving God glory for who He was. They were knocked down not one on top of another, but you and I are living stones being built into a spiritual house. And what's our role? To give praise and to give glory to God. To give testimony that Jesus is our Savior, our King. That He's changed the world because of His work. And our role, our role, is to be living stones who give that testimony. I wonder if, if instead of coming into Jerusalem, if Jesus were riding into Greenville, kind of came into view of First Christian Church, and have looked at our, us as people, not the bricks in our building, but you and I as people, built together as stones, would He weep? Would He weep over us? Or would on His visitation He finds us giving the praise that no one could silence? Giving the praise that on that day of entry into Jerusalem, those surrounding Him were giving. Blessed is the King who comes. Save us. You know that's a message our community needs to hear? You know that's a message a lot of people need to hear? It caused Jesus to weep. And now you and I are tasked with giving that same message to our community. Oh, that, that when Jesus would come here, that He would see us giving that testimony. That's what this week is about, friends. It's a week where we have this awesome opportunity to be living stones who give a testimony that cry out with all that we're worth that Jesus is our King. The worship during this week has the opportunity to be some of the most beautiful and meaningful things. We get to unite with a picture of stuff that happens in heaven. Would you join in on that this week? Would you renew your praise and your fervor that even as Pharisees in your life would say, quiet down, that you would say, listen, if I stop, creation's going to shout out because God deserves that glory and that praise. Let me pray for you. God, would you make us a people that together become a spiritual house that declares your glory? Would we fulfill that role to worship and to honor Jesus as Lord? God, so many things would silence us. So many things would make us want to be quiet. So often it's fear. 
God, give us rejoicing that is pure and authentic, that declares the glory of your Son, Jesus, and the work He's done. We pray that this week in particular, as we celebrate the message of Easter, that you would reinvigorate our hearts to praise you. And that as you would come, and that you would see what we do, that you would not weep, but that you would be lifted up and exalted.